Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Radley. Thank you for joining me again for this particular podcast. Now, one of the things that has been a topic of great concern, certainly over the coronavirus pandemic and in other contexts, has been the growth in violent extremism. It's probably good at the outset to, to just say that there's various kinds of violent violent extremist ideologies um, and that, that people need to be careful when they're dealing with the topic. What I want to do is talk to someone today who is actually a person who deals with the area of violent extremism and counterterrorism as a matter of uh, profession, training and interviewing people and looking at the causes that um, and, and the way in which people can be is pulled out, disengaged from that kind of activity. Shane Healy is a, an expert in counterterrorism. He does a fair bit of work in both training and investigating the area. And Shane will take us through some of the issues that you as a person who might have people going down a rabbit hole need to be aware of um, if someone you love or a friend of yours, uh, somebody along the line is getting radicalised. Shane, thank you for joining me. How you going, Tom? Thank you. Uh, that absolute pleasure to have you on board for this one. Now, the, the, before we dive into the subject matter, um, there'll be those who've never heard of you before. What does your what would your career look like if you had to uh, sketch it out or, or write it down on the back of an envelope for somebody? Um, I guess, uh, in a nutshell, former uh, military intelligence analyst uh, that served pretty much uh, 10, 10 years straight in the Middle East, looking at the various uh, terrorism organisations and then working in a domestic capacity, um, seeing how that influenced Australia. And then when I left the military, I uh, started working for government in the counter-violent extremism assessment intervention um, space. Is it? And that, that's been a fairly extensive period of time, um, as far as I can tell from your bio. Now, what you've got uh, in today's situation is there's a lot of focus and a lot of talk about violent extremism. How do you define that to someone that is only... Uh, only familiar with media coverage of, of the issues related to extremism. What would what's your baseline when you're talking to someone and introducing them to the to the topic? So the first thing that I do is I you explain or I explain the concept that society or normal society is uh, is is like in a, a fence or a paddock and. Um, you have your normal standards and uh, customs, belief, traditions within that. And then on the fringes of, of that, on the fence, we'll call it, is where you start getting people with extreme views, ideas, beliefs. Um, at this point, we're not talking violence. It could be vegans, for example, or it could be, you know, I used to joke about CrossFit. But, but people who have um, views that are a little bit outside of the mainstream, or uh -huh. what normal society, quote unquote, believes or or enjoys, then you um, 
people might label them as becoming radical. So, you know, if you go to the 60s, the hippie movement, they were radicals. And um, and then the more uh, radical an individual or that belief structure becomes, it, it becomes uh, on uh, to an extreme level where they actually might find themselves outside that fence or outside that paddock of what normal society believes is within their traditional values. And then once they're outside and that that extreme belief becomes more, you know, ideological and prevalent, then they're on that uh, potentially pathway to uh, accepting the use of violence in order to achieve their goals, which then becomes violent extremism. I'm made the point in the introduction that, that, that people need to be careful when they're approaching the topic because there's a lot of, um, I guess there's a lot of uh, ideological flavours out there, if I can use that term. Yeah. Um, is that something that concerns you about the general discourse at the moment that's taking place? Uh, with with the coronavirus and other things where there's a, uh, at times there appears to be a blending of things when in fact it can be far more complex. Yeah, and I think um, we've always had those fringe elements of the mainstream, you know, always. Um, what, you know, even and a lot of them in, in the past, like the suffragette movement for women, have have been um, more notable and successful. The problem with today's society and social media, clickbait, um, everything happens straight away. So those, yeah. especially in law enforcement, are, are always on the back foot, whereas previously it wasn't so fast and, and uh, rapid and dynamic and you were able to understand a fringe group or ideas or beliefs, and uh, prior to them, you know, becoming a problem and, and potentially becoming violent, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, social media tends to accelerate many things. It's like gasoline. Yeah. Um, one of the things we've noticed is the speed at which misinformation spreads. Yeah, well, and in. correct information that gets branded misinformation because it doesn't fit with someone else's narrative. That's a key issue <laughs> at the moment too, especially with coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, in this climate where things spread quickly, things can be branded differently. Yeah. And people are confused. Yeah. Um, if you're a parent or um, let's say, let's take COVID-19 for a moment and we can sort of traverse a couple of other things uh, shortly, but what are the things that people need to look out for? The signs that somebody might be entering into a phase of you know, becoming radical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do a lot of work in this space. I, I spent two years working with Youth Justice in New South Wales, and uh, I, I used to teach a radicalisation and awareness uh, program, uh, and we used to use six indicators, and uh, conduct was one of the first. So has your child 
you know, started changing their pattern of behaviour? Uh, are they online more? Are they wearing different clothes? Um, and then statements. So are they changing their vernacular or um, being more um, almost argumentative in some ways, you know, pushing back on certain ideas? Um, then their interests, have their interests changed? So this could be finding religion, this could be finding a political party or finding um, a, a new new person uh, or group to follow. Um, then their associates, their social, their social network change. You know, they start associating with uh, completely different people. So outside of their school or outside of their sporting networks, you know, they may stop playing sport. Um, and and go to uh, gatherings or online forums. Their appearance, you know, they might shave their head, they might get a tattoo, they might grow their hair, get an earring. Uh, and usually with youth, uh, they're very um, action orientated and less uh, vocal. So they'll let you know via, um, you know, these the, the appearance and statements rather than saying mum or dad. Uh, and then, you know, uh, youth are very susceptible to influence. So, again, you know, um, it, it's who are they listening to or watching the news? They might pay attention to certain um, topics on the news which they haven't before and then they might be having an opinion on that. So, um, you know, for years, again, the COVID, say COVID-19 analogy, all of a sudden they're becoming very interested in some of the reporting on the, at the six o'clock news. And then if you ask them about it, they get very defensive on their views. These are all key indicators of um, someone who has started down the path of radicalization. Now, the, 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 that can stop at any given, uh, that can stop at any given point. I mean, I think the, you know, one of my sort of favourite go-to, I guess, thinking tools in the area of extremism and radicalisation is a, a twin pyramid that was sort of, that sort of focused on by um, Clark McCauley and, and Sophia Moskalenko. We talk about they talk about radical opinion, radical action. In the work you've done, speaking generically, at what point? Um, do people go from, and it can be difficult to tell, I acknowledge, but uh, what are the, what's the tipping point for somebody that sort of sits there and expresses opinions as opposed to goes out and starts um, um, either donates to a cause or uh, attends a protest or does you know, goes around graffiti at night? which is something that happens in some cohorts. I teach uh, and strongly believe in a five-step process, uh, you know, five stage. And this first stage is the entry point. You know, something gets that uh, individual interested in that new narrative or belief. Um, and so that's the second stage, the narrative. You know, what are they listening to? What are they reading? What are they starting to talk about, engage with? Um, and then that that can build it. And because it is a process, that can be, you know, weeks to months, just building that that their belief and their knowledge base uh, of, of whatever it is that they're starting to engage with. That's um, 
men usually get a stage three or flashpoint. Something will happen that will solidify their new belief structure. So it could be the government are against us. That's why there's all these lockdowns or, you know, whatever it is, all the way through to, you know, um, some of your terrorist organisations, ideologies. Then you've got the stage for the real um, cementing of their new belief structure that or ideology that um, this is correct and I'm all in, you know, essentially all the chips are in the middle of the table. And then the last stage is um, is the acceptance of violence, which um, is is what turns that that from uh, radicalization to violent extremism. Now, in especially disenfranchised uh, youth, um, that acceptance of violence can actually happen a lot earlier than the belief and the flashpoint, and that's one of the things that, in my uh, line of work, we're really looking for. In the um, with those indicators that I spoke to earlier and early intervention. The one of the things I have noticed over the past two years is a um, is the influence of certain channels on certain uh, app, you know, messaging apps. Um, yeah, two. Possibly three years ago, you wouldn't have seen people uh, jumping on messaging apps and talking about, you know, returning capital punishment, for example. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have seen people driving around um, what I would normally associate a prop or a Gallus Cooper concert in the back of a on a on a on a trailer, um, you know. Uh, to emphasise some kind of political retribution, some kind of retribution against political leaders. How do we explain that to people who were confronted with a picture of a gallows on a news bulletin? There are those who will be sitting at home living their normal lives, complying with medical orders, yep. and they, they see something happen at a protest. How the hell do you explain that to people? So I think um, and the journalists and the reporting organisations have a lot of responsibility in their narrative of how they're reporting it because that's what those people that you have to explain it to, that's what they're going to hear, you know, the why. And I think there's a lot of sensationalism and a lot of doomsday in the current news cycle. Okay. Uh, you know, I've noticed recently, no matter how much the government want to move on from certain topics, the media keep those topics alive because that's where the clickbait comes from and people are more likely to click onto divisive content rather than, you know, um, quote-unquote feel-good stories. And there's a bit of a fair bit of data uh, and research that's actually gone into that because now, like news.com.au, uh, they track each story. And the moment it gets below a certain amount of clicks, they put a new story in. And the more sensational the story, the more clicks it gets, which is how they get that advertising revenue. Yeah, it's um, just on that. 
um, how in engaging with the people you engage with, you know, across the spectrum, does the role of media ever come up in conversations oh, with people? Constantly, constantly, because as someone who does the, you know, assessment and intervention of um, people that are on this path, they get a lot of their information uh, which then fuels their motivations from the media. Uh, you know, it could be, and it's been like that for a while, you know, going back to the foreign fighter problem when a lot of young Australians were leaving to go to the Middle East, they were watching atrocities on the news and going, I need to do or I want to do something about that. So, um, and then the news were narrative was what they were feeding off, whether it be counter uh, or agreeing with it. And we're seeing the same with COVID. So the media have a, and a massive role to play in this space. You spoke about sensationalism earlier. How do you um, talk about these things differently? Um, so... I actually ask a lot more than I talk when I'm doing this kind of work, like, you know, talking to individuals because I'm trying to understand their point of view. I'm trying to understand their narrative okay. uh, and their journey because the only way that I can, um, quote, unquote, get them out of that is to understand what got them in there. So, um, for example, one of the, there was a, a young... Um, male that I did some work with who was a convicted uh, terrorist. And, um, you know, I said to him, what would you say if I've got no uh, issue with you being uh, an extremist or an extreme Muslim? And he looked at me and I said it again after a couple of minutes and he goes, you're setting me up. And I said, why is that? And he goes, no one's ever said that to me before. I said, yeah, but no one that you've ever spoken to has lived in the Middle East and understand the, the beauty of, you know, that religion at its core. So I have no issue if you follow the five pillars of Islam and, you know, you pray five times a day and you live your life as a good Muslim. That's not an issue. The issue is when you think you have to or you're allowed to use violence to those that don't believe like you believe. And it really touched him. It was the first time that he'd been engaged with on that level. And then, you know, through later in the conversation, I actually got to his motivation and what got him in that thought process. And we started to do some very good work. So that's how um, the assessment intervention process is, especially with youth. You've got to, they want a voice. That's why they're sometimes acting out and, and you've got to understand what it is they want. And, and so the only way you can do that is let them talk, not get in their way. The uh, the current climate um, is fairly uh, fluid when it comes to extremism. We see groups emerge in places like, sort of, I guess, messaging apps like Telegram. Yep. Most people know what Telegram is. Um, uh, there's other ways in which people communicate. How... How important a role is it for, for, for people generally to understand that those 
forums create a, a kind of an incubator yeah for, for nurturing extremism what what are your thoughts on that uh, so I definitely think that the general public needs to be educated that that's taking place but I wouldn't get and this is from personal experience um, people then get interested and want to know themselves so in some ways you can actually be helping the uh, recruiters by getting the curious and you know um, I've seen that play out someone I did some work with actually in Melbourne um, he was wanting to do some charity work and then heard about telegram and that next thing you know he's on some extremist platforms you know, he goes, oh, I just wanted to understand how I could do some charity work overseas and where some impoverished, uh, you know, Muslims were. And, and I hit this link and next thing you know, I'm in these, these, these forums and chat groups. So I think uh, education is definitely required, but we've got to be careful how we, um, how we do uh, it. It's a difficult one, isn't it, ethically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you need to expose a dark world so people understand it exists and its implications. But at the same time, even having the conversation yeah, and, and, telling, you- and telling people the world, that world exists draw, may draw some to it. Yeah, and I'll give you a really good example that I use a lot and, and lived it, to be honest. Um, when uh, Al-Qaeda started... Um, producing their magazine, the uh, Australian Signals Director had actually blocked its um, the ability for it to be downloaded within Australia, as they should. However, journalists got hold of it, so they would still write articles about it. And the problem with that is they would sensationalise some parts of it um, and its use in, say, like the Manchester bombings and other places. So people were still getting the information Anyway, or and those that weren't looking, it was front page of, say, the Australian newspaper. So then they go looking for it. Um, and the more you tell someone who's disenfranchised not to do something, the more they want to do it. So you're exactly right that there is a real, and I've, I've lived in, and breathed this problem set for probably the last five years, there is a real danger in how and what you expose people to. Does... We've spoken a bit about the jihadist. We've spoken a bit about COVID. We've also seen a lot of coverage of um, whether they be fully fledged or embryonic uh, or whatever, um, uh, extreme right groups. Um, What... And then in some in some ways that coverage is important, but it does what are some of the effects of that kind of coverage of those groups that you can generally point point to? Uh, so again, uh, and we were talking about this before we started the podcast. There was a uh, some new stories at the end of last year that. The intention was to scare people, but they actually made a lot of people feel sorry for those that were exposed because the next three weeks all you read about was how people were losing their jobs, 
having uh, relationship issues uh, and other problems as a result of this media story. So something that probably one in 1,000 Australians were aware of, now one in five were aware of. And they had genuine uh, um, remorse and that to the grievance. So you enhanced a problem set because of sensationalism, and, and that's the real problem, especially in the right space, when um, you're actually playing into their narrative. One uh, couple of the prominent um, figures in, a, in a, an American organisation, National Socialist Movement, and they're no longer there, but they were prominent. And one of the things they said to me in conversation and in interviews uh, was that one of the best ways to deal with this kind of activity is the is to acknowledge that extreme an extremist group has been behind certain activities, but to not name a group or an individual involved. Is that something that you agree with? Yeah, 100%. Yep. And because then um, those on the fringe or are looking for an avenue don't have one or don't know, whereas, um, and I'll use a, this is a pretty very, uh, an open example how many people that, you know, talk about or, or use a swastika or whatever, how many of them have read Mein Kampf or actually understand the, the history of the Nazi party? Probably one in a million. But because it's so known and available, everyone just goes to it. Um, and that points to the importance of symbolism and some of the things that are being done at the moment by governments to minimise the visibility of that stuff in order to you know, get... get and, and I go, yeah, and I go back to that media report uh, at the end of last year that, you know, all that did was increase the following of that ideology a hundredfold, especially, like I said, in the weeks after when they saw people, you know, lose their jobs, be outed, you know, one of the papers had all their faces on it and names. Wrecked lives. So people then um, sympathise with that and they're drawn to the cause. One of the things Moskalenko and Macaulay talk about in a paper that was published last year uh, was in terms of enforcement and policing is the difference between policing action and policing opinion. Their view is that if you start to go down the road of policing opinion, however that takes place, you actually run the risk of <laughs> radicalising more, radi uh, uh, resulting, that process may result in more radicals as opposed to focusing on where a genuine problem might exist. Is that something that you that you agree with? Yeah, I, I do not believe that... Uh law enforcement has a role in the intervention of um, extremist organisations until they break a law uh, okay. because that's what law enforcement focus on. And um, I've seen that in the local space really uh, prevalently in the last 18 months that they're more focused on an arrest than intervention. Um, 
you know, there's some cases and I'm actually writing about it at the moment where um, early intervention, which was actually done, um, could have turned around these individuals and got them back on the path as being very functioning members of society, but instead they were essentially coerced to the point where they broke laws and then got arrested. They were, yeah, there were swings and roundabouts in the process. Yes. Okay. When uh, you've been really, really generous with your time today, Shane. So the, the, I think it's a really important subject that needs to be spoken about in the current context because I think um, on a number of fronts, society's a bit of a powder keg at the moment. Um, if you, I mean, it, it, like I said, well, we could talk about this all day, but which we won't, obviously. But happy to. Uh, in the in the context of looking at where a parliamentary committee may go uh, when, the, when the parliamentary committee releases its report, like at whatever whatever point it happens. Um, is there anything you'd like to see um, come up from a uh, as a recommendation? Something that might help minimise the, the 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 number of people um, involved in in violent extreme activity. So uh, education is the key, and uh, there's some very good education tools. So, for example, the Living Safe website, um, Living Safe Together Australia, it's called. There's some excellent tools on there for uh, families, parents to begin conversations with their kids, their friends, their relatives um, okay. to, to start um identifying and understanding if someone is starting to have those thoughts or beliefs, it starts in the house um, and that's where uh, it quote-unquote festers, not because it's anyone within the house's fault if if someone starts on that path, but you, you live every day with them and you can identify those indicators we spoke about earlier, um, but there's no education tools um, out there to help parents, friends, colleagues with that conversation, with what's next. All we see at the moment is to ring the National Terrorism Hotline. And um, I don't think as a society we want that to be our first uh, point of call. You know, I think we've got to be able to educate and have a conversation. Because a lot of times that's all they're looking for. They want to be heard. They want to voice their opinion. They want to ask questions and they want some answers. Okay. There's one thing before we before we finish. It's been fascinating get, 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 talking to you. Um, we know that there are different beliefs. There are different traditions around the world. Um, you've come across them operationally in the work you've done over several decades. How important might it be 
for people to be taught about, say, comparative religion, comparative philosophy through their uh, through, through their you know, secondary education. I think that's what high school should be for. History, geography, uh, two subjects where this should be discussed. Just, just you know, we're starting to talk about Australia Day is coming up and is it Invasion Day and, uh, you know, why do people think that? When was Federation? Uh, the, the I won't call it misinformation, misinformation, but I'll call it uneducation of 80% of Australians that don't understand the difference in dates and the different roles that happened in our history, you know. If I asked 100 people, did they realise that New Zealand was in the original vote for federation, 99 wouldn't know that. So I think um, history really, it starts in school, high school. They should know about Islam. They should know about uh, Ramadan. They should know about Easter. They should know about uh, your all your religions. Then... That's education. Education is the key. And but by the way, if we had New Zealand as part of Australia, we wouldn't be so stressed out about the All Blacks winning everything. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and we claim we claim most of them anyway. But you're exactly. But people don't know that. Like, um, you know, they said, no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna go our own way and beach and rugby every year. Shane, thank you so much for joining me. Um, can you can you just point repeat the the uh, name of that website again that you mentioned earlier in terms of living together? Um, uh, yeah, so it's um, living safe together Australia. Living safe living together Australia.gov.au. If you're listening to this and you've got anyone that's got a problem uh, with respect to going into any of the, any ideology, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, visit that website. That'll give you some ideas on how to handle it, who you can call and contact. And uh, a website that you can contact uh, me on uh, and other experts in this space is uh, Frenesis Training and Consulting. Okay. Shane, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to, to have this discussion with you. Anytime, Tom.